Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast, a podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. I'm your host, Jessica Yanguez. This week, my guest is Daisy Lopez. Daisy is a Miami-born, first-generation Cuban-American. Early in 2020, she made the leap from a newly promoted financial services senior consultant to a full-time business owner and coach. Daisy discusses her experience with anxiety and burnout that led her to leave her job as a consultant. And as a former perfectionist and people-pleaser, Daisy has navigated the heavy emotional barriers that keep so many living unfulfilled lives. With her mindset-first coaching approach, she works with clients to uncover the limitations that are deflecting success while also delivering practical guidance to get them launching their online business with ease. So grab your glass of wine and join us for the chisme. So how are you today? I am good. I'm so excited to be here. I'm just stoked to be on this type of platform, especially because I am a fellow wino. <laughs> so any excuse to like have good chat and drink good wine, I'm all for it. So um, thank you. We will get to all of that. I'm actually really excited because obviously before we get into any of the cheese, we always talk about the wine. Mm-hmm. And we, I had to go to Northgate Market, the... Latino market down this, you know, in my area. And I'm always looking for like black and brown wineries to support. Mm. Less, I don't know if you're aware, but like less than 2% of black and brown wineries are even in a retail space. So unless I'm like ordering it, which sometimes I don't get in time, it's really, it's sometimes really hard to find those types of wines. But at Northgate, because I live really close to the border, to Baja California, um, mm-hmm. and the wine country of Mexico is in Baja California. It's uh, Valle de Guadalupe. They had Valle wines there. So I'm so excited. I was able to get a Valle wine. So let me tell you what I'm drinking today. It's El Seto, it's a 2018 Sauvignon Blanc from Valle de Guadalupe. And so let me read, because I always like to read the little things, the tasting notes and stuff. So it's it's a medium-bodied white wine. It's light yellow with green hues and color, as you could see, right? And it says you get the aromas of citrus and peach with notes of spice. Mm. I'm smelling it, and I can definitely smell the citrus in speech. I, I'm not speech, peach. <laughs> um, it's high in acidity, which means, you know, obviously a lot of white wines are higher in acidity and stuff, but you don't want it too high or else it gets bitter. Green, uh, and then it says white wine in style, on the palate, dry, fresh, delivers citrus fruit character, hint of minerality, touch of grass, light, smooth, light, smooth rounded, pretty, juicy, soft, and aromatic. And it has a long finish, which means it shouldn't be too dry. So because mm-hmm. it's hot here in San Diego, and I think it's, I have people on the East Coast, which I'm not sure what area you're in. You'll have to let me know. Um, a lot of people, huh? You're, okay, you are in Miami. Okay, I wasn't sure. <laughs> so I have friends who live in like the Baltimore area, and they're like, it's already cold. They're like, it's freaking cold here. Aye, aye, aye. Yeah, I, aye, aye, right? Because I feel the same way. I'm like, no. But, so that's what I'm drinking. What are you drinking today? Okay, well, <laughs> I honestly took this opportunity. I've been wanting to try out this wine solely because of the fun feature to it. So it's like the 19 Crimes. Oh, I and tried Crimes. It's good. Yes. I wanted to try it for the app. So you know that there's like the Living Labels app or something that yes. it comes to life. The literal label comes to life and it tells you like the story and 
Um, so I wanted to try it, so I bought it, and it was on sale at Target. And I was like, you know what? This is my chance to try it. So this is just a 2018 red wine. Have you tried it yet, um, or are you just trying it for the first time now? I taste tested last night. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. No, no, no. It's like, I haven't um, tried this one yet, so salud. Salud, cheers, cheers. Ching, ching. How's yours over there? It's good. It's. I wish it was a teeny bit more citrusy, I'm not going to lie, but it is good. But I'm super excited because I have a Vaya wine. I'm so happy about that. <laughs> I'm glad you found it. Me too. Well, Daisy, I'm super excited because I'm really excited to have you here because when you when uh, you reached out to me in regards to coming onto the podcast, when you told me what you specialize in, I was like, oh my gosh, like I definitely need to have you on. We will get into all of those things because you went from, I'm just going to kind of say up front, you went from financial services to coaching, focusing on burnout and the unique challenges of first-generation leaders, first-gen leaders, Mm -hmm. particularly women. So before we get into all that, I want to hear you're in Miami, which I love Miami. It's been a few years since I've been. Pero I do not like the weather. Look at Mira. Look at all these curls. It does not fare well in Miami. I I remember one time we went for a bachelorette party because I've been a handful of times. And I straightened my hair. And I don't know why I straightened my hair because within five minutes. Bad decision. Yeah, it was like totally bad. There you have to embrace your curls and the frizziness that comes with it. I don't have to do that as much here in San Diego. So, (laughs) but I would love to hear, I know you're a first first gen Cuban. Um, Mm -hmm. I would love to hear your backstory of how you grew up, like what brought your parents here I've heard, because I've heard of stories of first gen, but I think, or of second gen usually, sorry. But I would love to also hear like the struggle of your parents coming from Cuba to here and then how that affected you growing up. Sure. And I'm so happy that, that you resonated with my message as well, because I really think it's important that, especially as women, we get together and we share our experiences, right? Every Absolutely. woman has such a beautiful story behind her and behind all the achievements is usually a lot of heart and a lot of challenges that we have to overcome. Mm-hmm. So I'm just so stoked that you're giving me this platform to share what I've been through. But yeah, I'm a first-generation Cuban-American and my grandmother actually left Cuba when my mom was like less than a year old and my aunt was maybe two or three. She left her husband behind. Actually, I never got to meet my grandfather. He never made it out of Cuba. Um, but she left Cuba with my aunt and my mom with her, my great grandmother, so her mom. And they were basically just fleeing, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, the rise of Castro and in search of a better life. They did not like the direction that that was going in. So she decided to just take the chance and uproot and move to Miami. And, you know, really for me as a first generation Cuban American and growing up in a household where I was so, and I still do feel so close to their struggles because they struggled. Pasaron hambre, like my mom tells me all the time, she's like, I cannot, to this day, I have a lot of anxiety around, um, you know, seeing a pantry empty or like seeing the fridge empty. And she still has a lot of that embedded trauma of the struggles of, of immigrating and in that like survival mode all the time. So growing up in a household where like my first language was Spanish and I I was very closely tied to that culture and to the experiences of scarcity and lack and, and hunger and just trying to make ends meet all the time. And for me growing up, it was always the message of like, this is your chance. You know, like my abuelos was like, I did not leave Cuba for you to not take full, you know, advantage of the opportunities that you have. So um, my messaging there was like, I need to honor the sacrifices that were made. And, you know, it was always a, an undertone of like, do, do what you want. However, keep in mind that stability is the name of the game, right? You want stability. You want a stable income, you want um, security, you want safety, you want lo beneficio that comes with like the corporate job. And in my mind, I felt like the best way for me to honor those sacrifices 
was to just achieve. And, um, you know, along with other experiences growing up, just based on how my body was as a Cuban American, like I was always just naturally curvier. Um, and so I got made fun of in school growing up for like the way that I looked and things like that. But in my mind, it was just like achieve. Like you're, you're only as good as your last achievement. And, um, you know, my dad was also very tough. And I was just like, you know what, you need to work really hard in life. And nothing's going to be given to you because nothing was given to us. My dad also came from Cuba when he was about like eight or 10 years old. So again, it's that belief of you have to work really hard in this life and in, and in this country and you're a woman. So it's going to be twice as hard for you and you're Cuban American. So it's going to be even more hard for you. So, you know, work, work, work. And so I really took that to heart. And in, in, in the back of my mind, it was always to make them proud and to make them just to, to, to prove myself to them and to make them feel like, wow, it was worth the sacrifice, which, you know, as a little girl, that's what you want to do. You want to, you want to feel like you're being approved of and yeah. you want to honor their sacrifice. So, um, you know, that just led me into that system of like achieve straight A student. If I got a B, it felt like the end of the world. <laughs> and um, I also had zero dollars for college. So, um, you know, I really took it to heart to get the straight A's and to graduate top of my class and, um, I was lucky enough to to get a, a first generation scholarship to go to the University of Florida. So it was nice. really it was really amazing to to represent my family in that way to be the first woman to go away to college and graduate from college. Period. But I I I, I shine a light on this because I feel like especially with the first gen experience, it's an interesting dynamic because we're so tied to that experience, the immigrant experience, even though we didn't live it ourselves of the scarcity and the struggle, yet we grow up in a completely different environment. It's right. like they're, they're preparing us for a world that that isn't still our reality yet. It's interesting because I always hear one of two stories um, when it comes to the immigrant experience and the first generation. And it's either where the family grows up in a household of entrepreneurs. And they mm. came here and they're like, okay, we have nothing. We just got to start. Or, and this is kind of where my family came from as well. It was more, it was like, you need to have stability. You need to get corporate, like, and they don't understand the entrepreneurial struggle, right? I don't come, mm -hmm. it doesn't sound like you come from a family of entrepreneurs. I don't come from a family of entrepreneurs. So I know when you step away from what they think you should be doing, they look at you sometimes like you're crazy and we'll definitely get into, into that when we get into like what you're doing. The other thing I want to touch on is you growing up in Miami, obviously it's a very heavily Cuban populated area. And you said you used to get made fun of for your curvy body. Did you grow up in an area that wasn't as diverse? Because I would think in Miami, like you would fit in, you know, being you know, una cubana and having a curvy, you know, having nalgas, having hips, like having all of that, that, that it wouldn't feel out of place. So were you, did you grow up in an area that wasn't as diverse that people focused on that? I wouldn't necessarily say it wasn't as diverse, like culturally, but physically it was, it's very common in my family for us to, you know, I'm assuming a large part of your audience is female and I'm just going to go with it. Um, we start like developing at a very early age. Mm -hmm. Like all of the women in my family got their time of the month at like eight years old. And oh, wow, that is different. Yeah. So it wasn't necessarily like a cultural type of making fun of. It was just physically, I was going through a lot of different changes really early on. And I just didn't, people kind of looked at me like I was an alien. <laughs> like, <laughs> what is that? Like, what? So, you know, with that came a lot of like added weight gain and the hips were coming in and development was happening in the time where everyone was, you know, still in their little girl body as is normal, I guess. Yeah. But that's kind of what was going on for me. It was, you know, yes, Miami is very heavily, you know, it's very like diverse culturally. Um, I really didn't get like my first culture shock until I went away to college and I went to Gainesville, Florida for college. And that was that was a big culture shock there for sure. And that's where I got a real first taste of like, wow, this is how 
the rest of the country maybe probably sees me. I just I was so um, I was so in my in my comfort zone in Miami that I I really had no idea of some of the the rooted like I don't want to say discrimination, but just the lack of knowledge that that many of my classmates had around the difference. Be- between like a Cuban and a Mexican, for example, or, you know, a Venezuelan and an Argentinian, they just like no concept. So actually I would love to hear more about your experience because I feel like that's been a common thread among a lot of people that I've talked to is they've stayed within their bubble. They've stayed within, and then they go to college and they're like, what? Like it's a, it's culture shock. Like you said, it's a completely, because you know, they're not only just within their cultural and familial bubble, but no, they never, you know, never realized that people saw them differently until they stepped out of that. So how did you navigate through your college years, like starting out, right, starting out and having this total culture shock between then and graduating and feeling, did you feel like by the time you graduated, did you feel like you've more comfortable in your skin and who you were and how you represented yourself or like for me I think that came even later right not just I I feel like I didn't even come into myself until my 30s to be perfectly honest but so how did you navigate those college years and feeling like you just stepped out of everything that was so familiar to you you know it's interesting because I feel like the conflict um, not so even I guess not culturally in Miami, but more traditionally, that conflict started before I even made the decision to go away for college because I remember my senior year, I think in my graduating class, maybe a handful of us went away to college. I mean, it, it was very much the custom and tradition that, you know, you stay close to home, you stay close to family. Here in Miami, there is Florida International University, which is a really great university. And for a lot of us, it's in our backyard, basically. So it's like the mentality is like you literally could stay home, be with your family, you know, be close to your parents and go to get an education. Why do you need to leave? Like, oh, I, have, I had somebody who went to FIU who's from Miami and same like literally her parents, she's Cuban. Mm-hmm. And she same thing she was like my family was like no you're not going away you have to stay here and so she went to FIU exactly that's such that's that's the expectation you know it's like you're gonna call me lucky you have everything here like what more do you need um and so for me I I had this this desire to step away and I didn't really know quite why I wanted to but I just knew that I wanted to to step out of my comfort zone in that way and I I'm the youngest of two older brothers so oh, wow. very much so they, protected. Yes, princesa. <laughs> yeah, very much protected, very much, you know, sheltered in a way. And I just, I wanted to do something different. So that conflict kind of started before I even decided to go away because my grandmother was having a hissy fit. Like, <laughs> it was just like <laughs> a big thing that I was deciding to go five hours away um, at 18 years old. And yeah, it was just hard for me to make that decision because it felt like the odd thing to do at home. And then I went up to Gainesville and I was like, that that jump for me was so hard and I couldn't understand why. I just thought it was because I wasn't an independent person. I just thought that it was because, well, you know, I'm a girl and, you know, this is not, I'm just not an independent person. And I've always been more of a shy person, but I was like, why is it so hard for me to like leave? And I was like, Daisy, hundreds of thousands of kids do this every year. Like, why am I making this such a big deal? It felt like such a big deal to me. And then I got to Gainesville and I realized, oh, because it literally is. Because all of these kids are like, yeah, my my dad came here and my grandfather came here and my tatarabuelo came to US. And I was just like, oh, like that's where it started clicking of this is where our literal bodies are not used to this type of of life like this is not expect like this is not the norm for us it's Mm -hmm. it is a big thing to step outside of your comfort zone and be the first woman in your family to do this type of thing like it feels like a big deal because it is right and I remember you know being asked things like why do you talk like that or what 
where's your accent from or like where are you from and I'd be like Miami no where are you from from like those types of questions (laughs) wow you know where I would start talking and people kind of look at me like hmm or like my favorite question was and it, it genuinely it was generally just interesting because I could tell that people were not really doing it out of malice they just genuinely did not understand they're like how do you know how do you how do you speak English so well like, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, like, oh my gosh. Anytime I hear stuff like that, I get so like, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> yeah. I was like, what do you mean? How do I know English? How did you learn English? <laughs> like, um, so, you know, it's just a really interesting experience to finally get a better understanding of how people see even first generation, yeah. you know, Americans who, who grew up here. But even then to people who have not been around that type of diversity, they just don't understand it. You know, they, they just, or I would just be assuming like, oh, well, you're Mexican. And I'm like, do you know that there are so many different types of Latino? And, you know, it's like, it's, it, it was just a really interesting experience. And to answer your question, as far as how I navigated through that, um, you know, I just, I took it as an opportunity to, I don't want to say educate others, but to give them a sense of like, they understand the people behind the accent, you know, that they hear or um, to give them more of an insight of, of this type of experience. And I just, I always just made it a point to just show what I was capable of through my work. You know, I just, I was on a, I was on a scholarship. It was a first generation scholarship and they did pair us with mentors our first year, which basically other scholarship recipients were like two years older than us. And that was a big help too, to find community in that and to have that type of support. But ultimately it was like, you know, I'm here to get an education and I was on a full scholarship, so I could not afford to get wrapped up in any of the silliness. So I just, I just put my head down and, 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 um, and did my thing, you know, just graduated. I had a goal in mind and I just worked towards it. So I know you went, you previously you worked in financial services. Is that what you graduated to do is like what, when you decided to pick your major, how did mm-hmm. you pick your major? Right. Cause I feel like I always knew for me, my major is public relations. I always knew it was going to be mm-hmm. within that realm, journalism, public relations for a long time. Mm-hmm. But when did, how did you decide? And is that what you ended up going into in regards to financial services? Or was it like, oh, I majored in English and somehow I ended up in financial services? No. So what my decision to major in, I, I ended up graduating in business administration and, and economics. And that decision is, I feel like it really illustrates this type of mentality that, that, that I'm, you know, that I had of like, I need to do what's safe mm-hmm. because I, I originally wanted to go to UF and study uh, nutrition and dietetics because like I mentioned earlier, I had a lot of um, like body image and self-confidence uh, like challenges growing up because of all the changes that I went through as a kid and all the, all the bullying and things that I went through and, um, I met a nutritionist who was also a health coach. Um, I went there when I was maybe in middle school. So I was pretty young, but she was just amazing. She really changed my life. She, she really helped me work through my, not only my self-confidence, but how I related to food and nutrition. And especially in the Latin community where it's like food is constantly like being shoved in your face. I had a lot of anxiety around that. Yeah. And she just really helped me redefine my relationship with food. So I was like, okay. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to study nutrition. And when I got there, very well-meaning advisors, they're just like, well, like, did you like chemistry in high school? Not really. And I'm like, well, if you don't like chemistry, you know, this is a really hard major and you're probably not going to do well in it because science is really hard. And, you know, maybe that that makes me so mad for you. Mm -hmm. Why do people continually discourage us? From doing, you don't know, like, yeah, you might not like science, but if you're applying it to something that you really like, mm-hmm. you're going to relate to it completely different. Oh, that pisses me off. Right. I've heard this it, so many times. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm 18 years old. You know, I didn't know. I was just freaking yeah. out that I was away from home. So I was just like, okay, well, they know what's best for me. You know, they see so many students year after year. I was like, well, I don't want to fail because I can't afford to fail. I literally don't have enough money to fail. So I was terrified of that. And I was like, well, I'll do business. Like business is safe and business is like, you know, it, it'll, mm-hmm. it'll carry me through. So that's when I decided to do business. And I genuinely just loved economics because it was more theoretical. Like <laughs> accounting was not my thing. I, I like the gray areas in life. So I, I like economics. Hated anything that we were taking statistics. I call statistics the devil's math because it was. Look, I went to a college. I went to journalism school, and our college within the university was the only college you could get a D in statistics and still pass because I went to journalism school. And they're like, and everybody in our in our school was like. Fuck this. Yeah. Like, give, her, give them the gray area. Give them the D fine. so they could pass. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, that for me was accounting. Accounting was the only C that I ever got in my entire scholastic career was managerial accounting. And I, you're so free to get that C. It was like, <laughs> it was terrible. I hear but, you. That's how it was yeah. with statistics. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. No me entraba, like it just, it didn't matter, like no me entraba, but um, yeah, that's how, that's how I got to my major, and the reason why I fell into financial services and consulting, again, I was like, I gotta make a point that I'm, you know, this 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 woman that went away to college, and I gotta get the job, I gotta get the, the big girl job with the impressive starting salary, and I was still in very much that mindset of like, I need to prove myself, mm-hmm. um, and at that point, it was more like, I've lived my life this way. So I legitimately don't know how to value myself if it's not for achievement. Like that's kind of where I was at that point. So um, I was like, you know, this is just, this is the system. Like this is the ladder. This is the, this is the process. Like I need to get this job. So um, I found this job and it sounded great on paper because don't they, they, always. <laughs> they always, that's how they get you. These campus <laughs> they're like, these kids are young. They want to travel. And they're like, yeah, you know, you're going to be working with clients. You're going to be traveling about 50 to 60% of the time and um, great growth opportunities and this and this and that. But the only problem is, is that it was in financial services. And I always told myself, I was like, well, you know, it's not a banking job. So I always told myself, I didn't want to do anything with banking. As the beautiful universe works, it turns out that now I wasn't in banking, but I was working for financial institutions. <laughs> I was working on the outside of it. And I essentially specialized in anti-money laundering regulation. So we would go to banks and look at their programs, essentially to make sure that they weren't unknowingly financing terrorist type of activity. And money oh, laundering. wow. Yeah, it sounds interesting, but it's a lot. And anyone who, who is in consulting or has been in consulting, it's intense because I was about to say, it sounds like road. cool, but it also sounds like it's a ton of pressure because if God forbid you miss something and then it comes back, it's, it feels like it's all on you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's regulators on the other side, constantly looking at the work that you know, we're doing as the firm that's being contracted to look at your programs. I'm like, there's a lot at stake. So bring in 18 year old or not 18 year old, like 23, you know, 22 year olds out of college who don't know anything about anti-money laundering regulation. Like I didn't learn that in college. There's no consulting one-on-one. Um, so you have a week in training and then it's like, go do it. Just a week. And, yeah, girl. That sounds like such an important job and you only have a week of training. That is crazy. And they put you in front of these bank presidents and, and officers and you're doing these, these services for them and, you know, bring in me who's like perfectionist to the core and is terrified of anyone seeing me make a mistake. And I'm literally in this job that is so fast paced you're it's a sink or swim type of mentality you're constantly on the road uh traveling out you know mondays or even sometimes sundays first thing in the morning working 10 hour days rinse and repeat you know it's it's a lot and there's the client work that's at least 40 50 hours a week there's the travel then there's non-charge work which is like internal organization work and 
I had no boundaries. You know, I was still very much trying to prove myself. And even from the beginning, I remember sitting in training and I was a day late because Hurricane Irma had just passed through Miami and I literally mm-hmm. could not fly out. And the next day, when the, as soon as the airport op- opened, there I was like sitting in the terminal oh my to, go to training. Um, but I remember sitting there and like everyone around me was, you know, all excited, like the road to partner, the road to partner. And in my, in my head, I remember just thinking like, no, I don't want it. Like, this isn't for me. But it was the, it was the dream, you know, everyone's like, oh my gosh, like, this is such an amazing job. And like the starting salary wasn't that bad. And, you know, I was traveling and I was like, how can I complain about this? Like, really, who am I to complain about this? Now, what else am I going to do? Um, but yeah, it just, ultimately I kept pushing, I kept pushing, I kept ignoring those intuitive hits of like, this is not for you, Daisy, it's not for you, Daisy. And, um, ultimately, you know, I started having panic attacks in hotel rooms, um, which I had never experienced like a true panic attack. I've always been tightly wound, but never a panic attack. And especially when you're away from home in a hotel room, that's when I was like, okay, I need to get help. You know, I need to, I need to look into therapy. And then December of 2019, I just broke. Like the burnout just got to such an intense state that I, I legitimately could not continue. And it was right before the holidays. Oh. And I was sitting in my therapist's room and, and my brother actually had texted me because we talk all the time. He was like, hey, are you okay? And I just responded, no because the exhaustion was just so much and I had it was just a year full of crazy projects and everything was going wrong and like I was always on these like long-term projects and like challenge after challenge after this and then traveling and it was just I just broke and you know I just made a decision December 30th of 2019 before I knew how crazy this year was going to be <laughs> I was like this is not okay and I need to, I need to really reevaluate because I'm 24, I was 24 at the time, I'm 24 years old and I'm miserable. I'm seeing specialists and my hair is is falling out in clumps and I'm not myself anymore. My relationships are failing and for what? Because I'm afraid that people are going to judge me because I'm going to deviate from this golden path that supposedly we're supposed to be on. I mean, for what? And I just decided 2020 before I knew anything was like this was gonna happen like 2020 is the year that that I'm gonna go all in on what I want to do well let me just say first of all I wouldn't have guessed that you were so young in age because you just seem like you just have so much wisdom in regards to it feels like you've gone through a lot in a very short period of time and I wish people could see what I'm seeing right now and seeing your face because I could see literally I can see and I can even feel right now i'm an empath as well (laughs) but i can literally like feel the hurt that you're going through i was getting goosebumps as you were telling me and and watching and just feeling the anxiety even just talking about it i can tell that you're reliving it and feeling it so first i want to say thank you for sharing that because i'm sure there's a lot of people that have gone through this and they're in different ways Having a panic attack is not fun. I've not ever fully experienced a panic attack. I've experienced different things. But like I said, I can feel it. Like I can literally feel it right here in my chest. Mm -hmm. And is that where you're feeling it? Like in your chest? Like literally that's where I'm feeling it for for you. But how long were you doing this job before you had your first panic attack and how, like, I'm so glad to hear that you said you started going to therapy and you figured that out because I think it's, it's getting less and less taboo within the Latinx community to be able to seek help out, but there's still so many layers and so much generational trauma that we sweep under the rug and we don't want to share it and we don't want to, we always want to say that we're fine and everything is okay. So first I want to say, like, I see you. I really, literally, I feel you because I feel Mm -hmm. it. And I appreciate you sharing that. How long was it before? And did you tell your family that you were seeking therapy or is that something that you kept to yourself? Because that can go either way within, within our community. 
Yeah, I'd say I was at my job. It wasn't even that long. It was maybe a year and change, like a year and a half, maybe a little bit less. And it, it, it would always get worse on the road. And I think like we can all agree, like when you're with family, there's a certain level of safety, right? You feel secure. And I still live with my mom. When my parents went through like a really messy separation. Um, so I'm here with my mom. And even when I was at that job, like I was living with my mom. So at least I knew when I came home, like she would kind of anchor me. But I really like the first time that I had a true panic attack on the road, I, I was really afraid to talk about it. Not because I thought that my mom would judge me, but it was just like, I felt almost shame around it. Like, why can't I handle this? Mm-hmm. Why, why am I letting this affect me so much? And like, what's really going on here? Because I know the work is not that important. I know the work is not life and death, although it feels like it because you have clients contacting you at all hours of the night because they want stuff done. But I just felt shame around it. Like, why can't I handle this? Why aren't I better at this? Why can't I be boss enough to handle this? You know, we're, we're so hard on ourselves as women, especially if we want to be these jefas and it's totally okay to, to not like it's, we can be jefas in more ways than one. And if a job doesn't align, it doesn't align. But yeah, I mean, I was there for about a, a year and a half and I had my first panic attack. And then um, the next couple of times that I had them were also while on the road. And um, I did talk to my mom about it and I told her that I was going to therapy and she has always been nothing but supportive of that um it took me a little bit longer to to tell my brothers about it just because i feel like especially in in you know latino households like the men there's like for me at least i'll speak for myself it was always this this belief that like men don't go to men with your emotions type of thing like you know, stay within the women in your family. Like that's where you can get emotional, but like, don't be all emotional and a mess in front of the men. Oh, yeah. in your I'm family. sure a lot of people experience that for sure. It was yeah. within our community. Yeah. So, you know, my dad is like not an emotional person at all. Like at least not outwardly. Um, he's very, you know, put together and, and kind of detached in a way, but just emotionally, <laughs> like we know he loves us and he cares for us, but that's kind of the dynamic that I always have felt with men. So it took me a little bit more time to come forth, at least to my brothers and let them know where I was. And obviously at that point in December, when I had my real break, I hadn't spoken to him in in over a week and we talk all the time. So that's when he was like, are you okay? Um, And for me to say no, he was like, oh, something's going on. (laughs) Like, you don't just say that. But yeah, the I mean, fact I think, that he asked, I think, is a really big thing, right? The mm-hmm. fact that he asked and the fact that you were able and comfortable enough to say no, probably didn't know what the hell to do, but at least you were able to say no and him say, okay, well, obviously something really isn't right then. Mm-hmm. And even like the hardest part for me, because at that point, everybody knew, like, even if I wasn't talking about it, the thing with burnout is that the deeper that you get into it, the more physically manifest. Mm-hmm. And I mean, my family tells me not all the time. We, we literally never saw you smile. And even when you smiled, it was like, you were trying, you were, you were doing it for a show. Like you were doing it so that we wouldn't ask you what was wrong and you would have to talk about it. Like we knew you weren't happy. And just like physically, I looked different. I wasn't, I, I wasn't, I was like, a shell of myself because I was so riddled with not only the anxiety of the job, because it's so much more than that. It's you're wrestling with this idea of like, I'm, I don't know how to get myself out. Like, how do I stop this train? I know that obviously puts you into where you're doing now and really helping people get over. And this explains why you decided to focus on burnout, right. And helping people get over that. At what point did you decide? Because obviously you said December 30th, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And it's, I think that's already one step that people, we find hard to do, right? We find that mm-hmm. first to admit to yourself that this is not a fit or this is not what you want to do. That already is like one step that many of us don't take, right? But then to say, like to use, to focus, I feel like you were like, look, I know other people are probably going through this and, and I've gone through this burnout. 
is that what prompt like I'm obviously that's what prompted you to really focus on helping people get over that but when did you decide like that was what you wanted to focus on going how did you go from your burnout to helping others focus on how to get over burnout and how to get through burnout yeah so it's kind of even evolved from just the burnout because as I've recovered from it and really the way that I needed to recover from it. And I feel like this isn't talked about enough because we love to, I call it like Pinterest type of self-care mm-hmm. where it's like self-care is like a bubble bath and a, and a face mask, which yes, those are beautiful things that we <laughs> so deserve. But like what makes us think that as women, we don't deserve to take even bigger steps to honor ourselves, right? Like that's, I mean, that's like the bare minimum that we need to take care Mm -hmm. of ourselves, ladies. Like we deserve so much more. And really the side of burnout, when it gets to that point where you're so physically drained and where there's health effects coming from it, from how deep the burnout is. And when you're literally losing yourself, that warrants a, a, a bigger assessment of what's going on in your life. And Oftentimes, the way to get through that is to make those bigger, harder life choices. And I don't see it really as like, oh, but that's so hard. It's the biggest act of self-love that you can ever do in your life to put yourself first, to, you know, acknowledge people can have their opinions and their judgments. That's honestly none of our business, you know, whatever people want to say or think and that's how I how I had to like reframe my mind so I was terrified of what people were going to say if I left this job and really I was just like you know what that's none of my business what they think my my biggest job my biggest work is to honor myself because I now feel the effects of not honoring myself for so long and the biggest act of self-care is showing up for yourself and for your dreams so when I started my coaching business, I was like, you know, I want to help people recover through burnout. And it still is somewhat of that because I'm now really focused on helping other women of color exclusively. And I'm, I'm finally at the point where I'm like, I'm so okay with just exclusively serving women of color um, because I think that, you know, there was a lot of like fear that, oh, well, well, well Will people like judge me for that? Am I excluding other people? But you know what? We need this. We need the support. It's okay for us to lean into each other because there are certain, you know, unique cultural blocks and just generational traumas that we need tailored help in, and that's totally yeah. okay. So right now, I'm really focused on helping women of color exclusively who who want to break free from the corporate ladder and who know that they want to be their own boss and serve others in their own coaching business, um, I help them launch that business. And the way that I do that is by tying in the mindset pieces, is by tying in spirituality, is by tying in all of the things that I had to really lean into Mm -hmm. to go from that spot of deep burnout, quite honestly, depression, because I mean, the therapy sessions got really dark for a while. I mean, I was deep in depression. I was having anxiety attacks and to recover to the point where now I can hold space for others and run my own business. And, you know, obviously I have the business background through education and, and I, I invested in a six month mentorship program to get the business fundamentals. But even then, even when I had, you know, what I thought I needed, which was the business tools and the strategies and, and, you know, the principles and all of that. And I had it nicely laid out for me in beautiful modules. Even then there was still something missing that I needed to really step into my success and to actually feel worthy enough to have clients and to coach clients. And that's where I was like, there's a gap here because as women of color, you know, more and more of us are, are, open to the possibility of living a more freedom-based lifestyle based on what we want to do with our lives, based on the people that we want to serve. Right. And, you know, so often we're told that we don't know enough, like we're not smart enough, but even if you have all the business tools and, and, and resources and things in front of you, as I did, there was still something missing because culturally there were still beliefs and blocks and there were, there was generational conditioning at play that I needed to work through in order to step into that role. And 
quite honestly, it's not talked about in our mainstream, you know, personal development and, and self-help type of content. And I just, I wanted to bridge that gap because I couldn't find that, you know, and, and the coaches that I had at the time that weren't women of color, I didn't feel supported in that way. I didn't feel seen in that way. And anytime I would say, but this, there is a block for me here, right. like charging, you know, charging people and, and, and feeling worthy enough to, to serve clients. Like this feels, you know, this feels unsafe for me. Of course it does because generations past, like this wasn't, they just, they needed to survive. Like they were in survival mode. They wanted the stability. They wanted the security. That's why it's so hard for us. That it's hard for us to be ourselves online. Of course it is because we've been hiding for so long. Like there is more at play. And even in the business world, I just feel like we need more of this feminine leadership to yes, have the business knowledge, but it's so much more than that. It's the mindset and it's, and it's that spiritual connection to move through those blocks and, and to be able to have the success that we want in our own businesses. One thing that I really liked what you said is you felt like there was something missing and I've had a few coaches on and here, and I think it's so vital to let people know that you have, when you're seeking out a coach, you have to go with whoever feels like they're going to go with you. And I think that it's, it's great that there are so many people that do coaching if they're going through the right training and going through the right thing. But it's also important to understand that you have to feel like this person is your match. Just like when you go to therapy, not every therapist is going to be your match. You have to find that. It's like it's in a whole other relationship, right? Like any other relationship you have. And it's okay to talk, to take advantage of like of the free, usually people what do like the 30 minute consultations mm-hmm. and everything to make sure that whoever you're going to work with in a coaching capacity is right for you, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's some people that might just be like, yes, I want a cis white man as my coach. There might be people that are like, no, I want a black woman as my coach because mm-hmm. she's gone through a lot of things that I've gone through. And within our community, it's, it could be, you know, I, I do want somebody and maybe it's people like for me, because I'm quote unquote middle aged, <laughs> even though I don't look like it. <laughs> no, um, but not as, at all. As, as somebody who's in her forties, like mm-hmm. I tend to gravitate to people that are within my checkbox right? That we check the same box age-wise to feel like life experience-wise, I can, I'm, we may not have, we definitely don't have the same at life experiences, but there's definitely things that I would relate to from somebody versus somebody who's a lot younger than me. So I think it's really important. So I'm glad you said like you felt like there was something missing, right? Because it's okay to feel like that. And it's also okay to seek other people to make sure that they're the right match. You said you under you, and I think you've, you've touched on this, that you underwent years of self-abandonment, doubt, fear, disempowerment, but you felt like it was voluntary and to, to end up in a life that quote unquote seemed successful, but you felt like it was voluntarily imprisonment. When you decided to break the chains, <laughs> figuratively break the chains and do that, because like we said at the beginning, it's, you come from a family that's very, like, you need to do this, you need to, how did you, tri- like, talk to your family about how you wanted to make that transition, and what was their reaction with that? Fell out myself. It wasn't the most graceful, I didn't handle it. Well, I guess I won't say that. I'm discrediting myself. It was hard for me. Like, that honestly was the hardest piece for me my mom has always been like the most supportive. It was interesting because growing up, my dad was really the one that's like, you need to do things that make you money and you need to get a good job. And it's all about the money and you need money to, to be safe. Like he was more of that survival scarcity type of mindset. And my mom is like over here, airy fairy, like follow your heart, <laughs> do whatever makes you happy. But you know, I think as a little girl too, I, I tended to gravitate towards you know what, what dad said and, and I wanted his approval as well. But when I came to that decision, I told my mom, and my mom was like, great, 
I told my closest friends and they literally happy danced around their apartment. They're like, we get you back. Like, this is awesome. But to, to go to the men in my family was really hard emotionally because, you know, that their, their opinions has always meant a lot to me. And uh, it was just, it, it made me like literally uncomfortable as somebody who also just doesn't like confrontation and somebody who doesn't like seeing people potentially, you know, give me criticism. It just made me uncomfortable. So I just tackled it one at a time, like having those conversations and coming from the place of like, this is my decision. This is at this point, really a health decision. This is where I'm at right now. And I hope you can understand that I'm not asking for permission. I'm really asking for your support. And from that place, you know, at the end of the day, they're my family and they love me and they don't want me to, to be in that suffering. Right. You know, it was, it was actually suffering. Like, I know it sounds dramatic, but it really was like really dark for me um, to be living so out of alignment and like just purely living out of what I thought I should be doing. Um, and being in a job that just honestly, a lot of the things that were going on in the corporate space, just I didn't agree with and I, I didn't align with and I felt like I couldn't do anything about it. And when I came from that place, they see it, you know, it's, they're like, uh, and I told them, you know, this is somewhat of my plan. I didn't really have a plan, which like they really didn't love. They were like, you know what you do, what you got to do. You're an adult now. And they were like, I wish you would have had something lined up, but you know, like you do you. And if you need, if you need me, I'm here. Um, so, so that you, was really like empowering to talk like that yeah. to them. Well, I'm glad to hear that because actually my next question kind of leads into that because you said that you find confrontation hard. And as a coach, you have to not only coach yourself, but you have to coach others in being able to confront things. So mm-hmm. how have you dealt with being somebody who's non-confrontational and having to build the courage up yourself and also help others do that? Mm-hmm. I love that you mentioned coaching yourself because that is such a big part of being able to hold space for others in a way that, and especially in a coaching type of relationship, it's so healthy to to be able to allow them their process, right? Because there's a lot, especially in the beginning stages of trying to launch a business, there's so much going on in the mind. Like there's so many fears coming up and and like, honestly, the best personal development journey I've ever been on is starting a business. It's like so much comes up. But I really had to visualize the type of coach that I wanted to be and the type of woman that I wanted to be. And it really is a process of seeing yourself and being there for yourself before anyone else is around you, you know, applauding you for the work that you're doing, you know, because it's so easy when we start something for the first time, the ego takes over. It's like, mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I want to do this for the likes and for this and for that. But for the first while, you know, you feel like you're talking when nobody's listening. And that's where you really have to be there for yourself. And, and I'm glad that now in, in, the, in the personal development world, we're talking more about this, this like healing the inner child. And I'm not sure if you've heard of like that term being yeah. used before. Yeah. And you know, it really is a journey of getting to know that that little girl inside of yourself, the one that tends to run the show and say, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. Nobody cares. I'm not seen. I'm not heard. And all those things come up. And when I mentioned that, you know, I was in a, a coaching space where I didn't feel seen in that way because I felt like my, where I was coming from culturally and all the beliefs that were already in me, like it was like they didn't understand it. So I really had to coach myself and be like, okay, what do I need to get through this? Because this is a must. So like this business is a must for me. This needs to happen for me. This is what I'm meant to do. I need to really be there for myself. And I, I had to just do the inner work. I had to look at, okay, why am I so codependent? Why do I need other people's approval? And this is really where spirituality came in for me. And if I can get woo for a second, leaning into the spiritual principle that I was born already worthy that, you know, I, I believe in God and that, you know, God created me for a purpose. And if he already thinks I'm worthy, I don't need permission or approval from anybody else. 
And from that place, I was, I was able to really heal all of these wounds of like, I need to prove myself to abuela, to mom, to dad, to brother, to, it's not about that. Like now it's just the point of living out my, my mission right now. And it it can always change, right? You know, we all have, our purposes can change in life as we grow, but to really lean into like, okay, you know, I really believe that God sent me here to serve other women in this way. And from that place, you know, I can have the hard conversations with clients. If I don't think think they're ready, I'll say that to them because it's all in love. And it's okay if they don't necessarily like, you know, the fact that I that I say certain things or I hold up a mirror to them and I say, Hey, I think this is coming off for you. Like, you can do this, but this block is coming up for you. Like we need to confront this because I'm doing it out of love. And I was able to do that work within myself and kind of hold myself in that way. And now I can in turn hold the space for them. Right. I so appreciate everything that you just said, because it's very true. And when you're talking about holding up a mirror and we have, we constantly have to hold a mirror up to our, to ourselves. And we don't always like to do that. So sometimes we need somebody else to do that for us because it's something that we're not always willing to do for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So even by getting a coach, it's a form of self-love. And when you talk about inner, like healing your inner child, what I instantly went to was your childhood of being bullied and everything like that. And, and that coming into being able to heal that. But when you say like, I know not everybody believes in God and a lot of Mm -hmm. people are still very spiritual and believe in the universe, but regardless if you believe in God or not, I think we all have to know that we are here for a purpose. Mm -hmm. We are there is something so much bigger, whether it's just the, whether it's the universe, right? Like whether if that's what you believe, just maybe you don't believe in the God, but you believe in the universe and the Mm -hmm. the universe has a plan for you. The universe has a purpose for you. So I like, and once you realize that you are worthy, that is like the number one thing, right? Because I feel like, and I I know this has come up on previous podcasts in regards to like, we like to beat ourselves up. We like to put everybody in front ahead of us, except, and, and we always get the scraps, but if we're not feeding ourselves emotionally, mentally, physically with all of these good things, then we're not going to have anything to put in our bucket to give to anybody else. Mm-hmm. So I think what you're saying right now is like when you're saying like realizing that you are worthy, that's so important. And what if there are three tips or three things that you would be able to, to share, to be able, you know, to impart in regards to people, whether they're going through burnout, whether they're questioning their own worthiness Mm-hmm. Anything like that, what are three, it doesn't have to be tips or what three things would you suggest people need to start from in order to move forward? The first thing I would say is you can have it all and you don't necessarily need to do it all or know it all. So what I mean by that is you can have the life that in your mind you daydream about, like the life where you know, you're not living in this job that doesn't fulfill you and, and you want to have the, the career of your dreams, whether that's starting your own business or, or just a dream job and have love in your life and have abundance, like all of you can have it all. And you don't necessarily, you don't need to know it all to start. Like to get there, you don't need to have all the answers and you certainly don't need to do it all. And especially with women, I think having, having questions is more important than having the answers, right? For sure. For sure. The, every question has an answer. So it's okay to have questions. The answer will come. And especially as women, we need to, not that we need to, we get to create more space for ourselves in the way of leaning into support. And, you know, we, we are so hard on ourselves. We feel like we need to, we need to do all the things that traditionally we're told we need to do. We need to cook, we need to clean, we need to take care of others, we need to do all these things. And now we have the added pressure of, you know, having these amazing careers and, and doing that whole thing and being there for our coworkers. Like there's so much that we have on our plate and anything that you can ask for support in to make life easier for you and to, and to create more efficiency in your life, lean into that. 
you know, especially as women, like we deserve to be supported. It's okay. The second thing is to, to get to know yourself and to make time for that, to prioritize that. Because a big thing that I hear, not only just in like women wanting to start a business, but just in life. And especially with like the quarter life crisis being like so common is like, Mm -hmm. I don't have clarity on what I want to do with my life. Like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. And that's okay. What that is, in my opinion, is an invitation to get to know yourself again. Because somewhere along the way, maybe you self-abandoned like I did, and you went on the I should do path, not what I want to do path. And, you know, we change so much. And maybe it's been a while since you since you reconnected with yourself and really got into know yourself. And what that can look like is spending some time in the morning, um, whether it's 10 minutes journaling or reading or meditating or drawing or whatever it is, just quiet time where you can really just sit in your thoughts without scrolling, without screens, without distractions. Because in those silent moments, when you make time for it, you'll start to reconnect with like what inspires you, what what you're drawn to and go after like what pulls you and not necessarily like the pressures that are pushing you. And the third thing that I would say you know, it doesn't, and, and you touched on this earlier, I like that you said that it doesn't matter whether you believe in God, spirit, source, universe, sunlight, whatever you believe in, consume content that is not subscribed to the limiting possibilities and potentials that the the mainstream world tells us. You know, the news is always bad news, and we're constantly being told that there's limited abundance and there's limited this and you're running out of time. And and it's like scarcity is embedded in so much of what we consume every single day. Yet as human beings, like we are spiritual beings, regardless of of what form that resonates with you, like lean into that because there is abundance. There is abundance in this world. There is endless possibilities for you. And, you know, lean into those types of spiritual principles because you'll start to see yourself as this incredible being who was born to live out some sort of mission, whatever that is for you, some sort of, you have a message in you, you have a mission in you that you get to, to live out. And the more that you kind of lean into those spiritual principles and, and less of like the scarcity and, and the fear that's around everything that we consume on a daily basis, mm-hmm. you'll start to, you'll you'll see like different opportunities come in and and you'll see the world through a different lens. Love that. What is something, no matter what, no matter how you're feeling, that can always make you smile? My dog. (laughs) (laughs) I am so in love. I have a one-year-old golden doodle. His name is Lincoln. He is tremendo jodedor, but he... It just cracks me up and he was actually a gift um from my mom and and her boyfriend because I was in the thick of my burnout and I was I, like Gary like you need something and um they gifted me Lincoln and he is like just an endless source of love and approval and every he just looks at me and he just like comes up next to me and cuddles me I'm like oh you can have Aww, everything I know I have my little munchkin and isn't it amazing what uh what a pet can do for you. I've, I've had my, my dog for 10 and a half, almost a new year's day. It'll be 11 years is our 11 year anniversary that I've had him. And he's a pain in the butt, right? Otra vez. But he's my pain in the butt. And no, but mo- like, he's such a sweetheart and he's such a cuddler. And when I'm having, he knows when I'm having a, a bad day or if I'm not feeling good and mm-hmm. just makes my life better. So I totally understand that. How can people reach you on social or, or website or anything else if they want to reach out to you? Yeah, I mean, I'm always on Instagram. I think that's the, the easiest way to find me. So I'm on Instagram as at the Liberated Latina. And um, yeah, I'm always on there. I do live twice a week, just delivering my little mini trainings on all things business, mindset, spirituality, living a liberated lifestyle, all the things. So Instagram yeah. is the best way. So Daisy, we always start and end 
with the type of wine. So what type of wine is your favorite, red, white, or rosé? And do you have a particular type that you favor more than anything else? You know, I'm a sucker for a good cab. I love a good Cabernet. Like that's yeah. like to, honestly my go-to. If I do a white, it's probably like a Pinot Grigio or something like that. But usually I'm sipping red. <laughs> I mean, I've since I've started this, I've my palate has opened up so much. I've discovered so many. I mean, I I've always been like a wino otra vez, so it's not like mm-hmm. anything has been terrible, but just that that so many different types of wine have just really come to like open my eyes and everything. But mm-hmm. I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and thank you for sharing your story and being vulnerable because I think a lot of times people think when you're a coach, you have to know everything, but you like, if you haven't experienced anything, then how can you help anybody else? Right. That's how I feel. I'm like, I don't want somebody whose life is perfect because how are they going to help me? My life is far from perfect, although I am pretty fabulous. (laughs) Yeah, girl, of course. (laughs) But I want to say thank you so so much. much. I really appreciate you coming on. And until next time, mi gente. to this episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. For more information on Daisy, please see the show notes for links to her social media accounts. You can also check out all things Wine and Chisme on our website, thewineandchismepodcast.com. There you will find the names of the wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on Instagram at The Wine and Chisme. Make sure to put The Wine and Chisme and Facebook and LinkedIn at The Wine and Chisme Podcast. Remember, if you want to hear more wine and chisme, 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 please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are always appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated more. Until next time, mi gente, saludos.